Listen, grab your Bibles, please, at this time, and I'd like you to turn with me while you're standing to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to be basically here throughout the evening, though we'll branch off just a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll begin reading here in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. And it reads the following. You know this chapter well, I'm sure. It reads, though I speak with the tongues of men, Paul is speaking, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but not have love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but not have love, I am nothing. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Check out verse 4. Love suffers long and is, can someone tell me? Kind. Okay, jump down to verse 8. There's a phrase here I want to capture. Love never fails. Jump down to verse 13. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is, everybody say it, is love. Okay, pray with me at this time, you guys. And just join with me. I mean, heart to heart. Let's go before our precious Father's throne. Lord, you have promised that in the last days you would pour out your spirit. It speaks of the fact that you would generously bless us with your presence. You certainly have. In every believer's life, you indwell us, and you are here in our midst. And we have gathered here, Lord, in the great name of Jesus. We know you are here. We believe you are here. And we're not here seeking an experience or to merely increase in knowledge. We are here, Lord, to experience you. We are here to grow in intimacy with you, Lord. Would you have your way within each one of our lives? We ask that you would pour out your spirit upon this time. We pray, Lord, that we would leave here uh, closer to you than when we came. We know that we're loved and forgiven and positionally yours. But Lord, greater intimacy is what we desire. And you are the most wonderful reality there is. We are here, Lord, to meet with you. That's why we're here. And we want to pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, we pray you would draw them to yourself. We pray, Lord, the greatest miracle of all would take place. Hearts would turn to you. May there be incredible love rescues here tonight. We ask these things in the great name of Jesus. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat, you guys. Well, the title of the message is, What Love Looks Like and Why It Wins. I heard a story about a guy who went to the doctor. And he said, Doc, look, I I don't know what happened, but I am hurting all over. And it just came upon me, and the doctor was a bit bewildered by this. He said, you, you're telling me you hurt everywhere? Absolutely, hurt everywhere. And it just kind of came upon me. He said, Doc, check this out. I mean, I touched my forehead, ouch. And then I touched my shoulder, ouch. Touched my knee, ouch. You know, just my chest, ouch, ouch. And at first, the doctor was kind of bewildered by this. And he said, let, let me look at your hand. He said, the problem is you have a dislocated finger. That's the problem, you know. That's why you're hurting everywhere. Would you believe it if I told you that the genius plan of the Father in Christ has so much to do 
with ensuring that there's not dislocated love in our life? Would you believe it if I told you that, look, here's the thing, if there's a dislocated love, if love is dislocated, if if love is broken, it throws everything off in our life. The gospel is about bringing right alignment with regard to the issue of love. It's true. In fact, the Bible tells us, as you know, God is love. Which makes sense then that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love our neighbor as ourself. And then it makes sense because he is love. That this genius plan that he has in his son, which is a love rescue to planet earth, goes something like this. We know it, John 3, 16, for God so love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not, you know the next word, would not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words, would not break down. God's plan in Christ is actually this phenomenal love rescue so that we don't break down. His love protects us. His love nourishes us. Okay, and then it would make sense that those who really know Jesus would experience love. That would be the byproduct in their life. It would be love, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, It would make sense then that love never fails. Love never fails in being good and redemptive and helpful, that it is eternal. And that actually, the basis of our relationship with the Lord is actually love itself. I think we have it up here on the screen. The Bible says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in, can someone tell me, in love. Oh, love, 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 love. God is love. You'll know my disciples by the love that they have for one another. The byproduct of genuine relationship with Almighty God is, in fact, love. We talked about all of those, all of those things Here's the question we want to pose. I mean, what does love actually, though, look like? And why does it win? Why is it always good? Why is it always redemptive? Why is it always helpful? Why is it eternal? Yeah, we would say that love is definitely like the highest value. If I were to say, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, where would you put love? We would all say definitely it's a 10. But what is love? How many of you remember when the Beatles sang, all you need is love? You know, could you raise your hand out of curiosity? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's so true in a lot of ways. But then they broke up. I got to tell you, I'm kind of bitter about that. Right? So it's like, okay, all you need is love. Oh, that sounds good, but what happened to them? I mean, is love that which always feels good? Is love always euphoric or does it at times feel suffering? Is it consumer-based or is it covenant-based. Hey, when Johnny says to Susie, I love you, are they really communicating? Because in order to communicate, you know, Johnny and Susie really need to be thinking the same thing when the issue and the subject of love is addressed. And if they're not thinking the same thing, if they're really not on the same page, if they're not getting it with regard to what love really is, what's at stake? i got to tell you something. Today we're amidst a major redefine to what love is. It's true. And it's really based on the worldview that everything came from nothing, that we're really a byproduct of mindlessness and pure naturalism. And therefore, the evolutionary 
biologists would say that love is merely chemicals in our body. The, the love that you feel towards your children, well, that's not really something of soul or even something that's cultivated or something that grows, uh, something that is going to last. It's just merely the chemicals in your body. And of course, there's a very popular slogan today. Maybe you've seen it on the television that love is love. How many of you out of curiosity have seen that? Well, it sounds positive, but it never defines what love is. And we say, well, love is love. I mean, so long as it's two consenting adults and they don't hurt anyone. How do you know? How do you know that what they call love is not going to hurt anyone? How do you know it's not going to impact the next generation? How do you know it's not going to hurt them and kind of boomerang back when they're 50 or 60? How would we know that? How do we know? Look, we have no idea why we exist on planet Earth unless the one who created us reveals it to us. This issue of love is of the greatest importance. If it's dislocated, if there's a dislocated love or a counterfeit love, it wrecks lives. It's all the more that we get it right. So that's what we want to do tonight. What does love look like? And why does it win? So here's where we're headed. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? And that's going to be the base where we're going to be hovering throughout the evening pretty much. We're going to establish the context of the passage, and then we're going to identify five realities uh, that tell us what love is and why it never fails. So 1 Corinthians 13, here's the context is, of course, known as the love chapter. And the Apostle Paul, of course, penned it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Some have said, actually, this is his greatest literary work. But it's inserted, of course, between chapter 12 and chapter 14. When this was originally penned, there were no chapters, there were no verses and things. Okay, but nevertheless, it's inserted as Paul is addressing the subject of how God gives every believer gifts. He gives them abilities. Once they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they not only receive him, but the Lord gives abilities to every Christian to benefit the church as a whole. How many of you are tracking with that idea right there, right? Could you raise your hand? Right, spiritual gifts. He gives gifts. Maybe teaching. It may be compassion. It may be mercy. It may be knowledge. It may be administration. It may be leadership. Every single one of us have been given gifts. And these gifts are purpose so that the church as a whole can grow and benefit from them. Now, here's what we're told, okay? We're told that unless love is the operational system of the gifts, so to speak. It throws everything off. It becomes majorly dislocated, and it undermines the original design of how God created the church to grow and impact a generation. And so what Paul does here, and in some ways it's like you read this, and it's like, are you, is he exaggerating this? When he says, for example, in verse 1, let's look at it again. I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love. I've become a sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul, are you exaggerating this? 
No, not at all. No, no, here's the thing. Unless love is at play with the gifts that God has given us, it throws everything off. Let me try to illustrate it. You know, Thanksgiving is coming up. So imagine a mother or a grandmother who prepares a meal, and she spends days preparing this meal, and she spends a lot of money to, pre- to prepare the meal, and and she's cooking it, and she's working on this thing, and then she lays this wonderful meal out, and she invites the family over, and there's like maybe 20 people there. And then, I know this is so weird, <laughs> then she sits down at the table, and it's all set up, and she's the only one that eats the meal. Like, no one can sit there. So it's like all the resources and all the talent and all the giftedness that she has and that has been demonstrated just merely goes to her. Now, obviously, that's bizarre, right? What's missing? What's missing, of course, is love. Love is selfless by nature. It's others-oriented. It's protective. It's nourishing. The church in Corinth had serious maturity deficiencies. It was a celebrity church. They were like, you know, hey, I'm of Paul, and uh, I'm of Apollo, some were saying. I'm of Cephas. They were guruizing their leaders. They were a consumer church. They would have these potlucks, and some would just, like, eat all the food without any consideration for other believers. They were a loveless church. It all equal to the fact that Paul said in chapter 3, you guys are carnal. You're, you're in this arrested state of growth. The problem with you guys is there's an absence of love. You're not growing and maturing as God has intended, which tells us, please hear this, this is all the context, we're going to get to the specifics in a little bit, is that, watch this, I can have experience, I can have knowledge, I can have talent, I can have giftedness, but if I don't have love, there's not genuine growth, there's not authentic maturity there. And one person said this, gifts will usually be mistaken for spiritual maturity. If anything, we Christians living today are in greater danger of this misperception than any other time in history, for our era has been called the age of technique. No civilized society has put more emphasis on results and skills and charisma or less emphasis on character, reflection, and depth. This is a major reason why so many of the most successful ministers have moral failure or lapse. Their prodigious gifts have masked the lack of grace operations at work in their life. So look, church, you're the counterculture to culture. You're this community that Jesus is building for which the gates of hell cannot hold us down. He, he conquered death. We too will conquer death. The church is the hands and feet of Jesus in a generation. The Lord gives us gifts, every single one of us, so that we can contribute to the greater good of the cause of Christ. Can I hear a big amen to that? But here's the thing, what Paul is saying. Look, okay. Church of Corinth, celebrity church, consumer church, loveless church, carnal church. Here's the thing. I mean, you can have all that talent and and knowledge and stuff, but you don't have love. It throws everything off. You say, Greg, what are you getting at? Okay, I said a lot there. Here's what I'm getting to. There's nothing more important than love. And we have to see it and understand it clearly. Can I hear another big amen to that? 
So therefore, check this out. Here's where we start getting to the heart of the message. Check out verse 4. He begins to describe what love looks like. He identifies 14 descriptions, some pro, some con. But the first phrase here in verse 4, love suffers long and is kind, is absolutely critical to get and for it to be embodied in order for the other descriptions of what love looks like or what it doesn't look like to be at play within each one of our lives. This one is big. I mean, look at verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. I mean, what does that mean? In short, love is patient and suffers long, which means it's not reactive when there is relational adversity. Love actually retreats in patience, and then it advances in kindness. And that word kindness is Christos. In the Greek, it means it's mellow. It, it doesn't, it's not sharp. It doesn't have a point to it. So this tells us that actually love, I mean, when love is really at play in our lives, that actually we will feel suffering. We will be out of our comfort zone. Love is not always euphoric. It's not always sensual. It's not always romantic. No, genuine love actually feels suffering, actually feels adversity, even sometimes even feels injury. And therefore, it's not always, as I said, happy, 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 or euphoric. And here's the context. See, Paul is dealing with interpersonal relationships. He's dealing with the church family here. And he's just saying, look, on a horizontal level between you and Johnny or Susie or whatever the case is, inevitably there's going to be friction there's going to be adversity. There's going to be difficulty. I mean, you know, all of us obviously come from families. We got a few crazy uncles. Hey, you become a believer. You become a part of the church family. You get a hundred crazy uncles in one day. I mean, the church family is the most diverse family on planet earth. When there's friction or adversity, which is inevitable in our relationships, the natural response uh, to pain or being out of our comfort zone is actually to react or to recoil or to self-protect. It's like, oh man, I mean, there's some miscommunication going on here. They said something I didn't like, or I think they said something I don't like. This is difficult. Okay, I, I have some pain here. And so the natural response is I'm going to react to that. I'm going to, it's reactive. I get angry. It's, I'm reactive. Or I kind of recoil and self-protect. Here's the problem with that. The problem is now my decision-making, my attitude, my actions are being informed by pain or maybe not seeing the whole picture. And when now I'm starting to be informed by these realities like pain and bitterness and frustration, it starts to morph into even worse realities. See, it could be said that God's love actually is a rescue plan in Christ. It replaces self-management with God's management in our life. It's like what Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. When I'm under new management, not being reactive, 
not self-protective, not recoiling, not like, hey man, I've kind of been injured. Gee, that hurt. And so now I'm going to try to manage my life based upon my own wisdom or my own experience, which generally morphs into worse realities. When, like the Lord takes over, when love is at play, well, you don't have envy and arrogance and rudeness. And indulgence and reactive anger and an evil mentality. And what happens is the greatest teacher in life ends up actually becoming, it's actually, excuse me, between the retreat and the advance when love is at play. In other words, watch this. You know, I'm, I'm interacting with a friend or something. There is some friction, which is inevitable in all relationships. What does love do? Love doesn't react. Love retreats. Love is patient. Love is long-suffering. And it's between the retreat and the advance that then advances in kindness. It's between that arc that's one of the greatest teachers in our life. It's, it's where we become really more like the Lord Jesus himself. And this is our first point here. We have it up on the screen. Love retreats during relational adversity, and then it advances in kindness. And it's between the retreat and the advance that you actually grow more like Jesus. You grow in greater understanding of humanity and weakness you begin to recognize, hey, wait a second. You know, there was no intent to harm there. Gee, you know what? If I'm not reacted in my retreat and I like long suffer here and then I advance in kindness, I realize um, there's a lot of moving parts here to life and communication is not easy. And if I'm not reacted, but I retreat, you know, in long suffering and patience, I realize, okay, well, they told me they were going to send the email. I never got it. And that kind of upsets me. But, well, wait a second. It ended up in my junk mail or something. And I begin to realize, you know, uh, a lot of times people are speaking out of pain. A lot, of, a lot of people are carrying a lot of baggage. And it's like, hey, the Lord came to break destructive cycles. He was like on the cross and said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. But see, here the thing is most of the friction and the arguments in life that take place, they're over little scratches on the finger. It's like, you know, they didn't smile at me or they didn't text me or, you know, I wasn't invited to the party. And if we're reactive to those things, it pulls everything down. It pulls life down. It pulls love down. A lot of times we realize then if we... Let me rephrase that. When we retreat amidst adversity and then advance in kindness, we begin to realize that, you know, a lot of times the problem really isn't the problem that we think it is. The problem is my small heart. The problem is a lack of compassion and in empathy and love. Love at times is like a sponge that absorbs the blows of ignorance and friction and adversity, even injury. It's similar to how the famous Hebrew scholar identified the just saying that they are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves, to advantage the community. The unjust are willing to disadvantage the community 
to advantage themselves. What does love look like? Love suffers, can someone tell me? Long, just like the Lord. When he's on the cross, as I mentioned, it's like, Lord, forgive them. They're intoxicated. They don't even realize what they're doing, the consequences of their decision. This whole generation is manipulated. Poor leaders, they don't even realize what they're doing. Oh, my goodness gracious. Someone has to break the destructive cycle. Christianity is about breaking destructive cycles. Love breaks destructive cycles. Can I hear a big amen to that? And it really is, amen, and it really is like now I'm under new management. If self is driving it, jealousy. If self is driving it, evil mentality. It always morphs into worse thing. This is so key. I got a retreat in long suffering. I got a retreat in patience and then advance in kindness. Just remember that. The arc there between the retreat and the advance is one of the greatest learning curves, if not, if not the greatest teacher in our life. But but let's look at verse 8, you guys, which identifies yet another reality of what love looks like. Love never fails, the Bible says. Now, what does that mean? I mean, what doesn't fail? What nation doesn't fail? What body doesn't fail? What technology doesn't fail? It's a very interesting word in the Greek. It's the same one to identify a flower, that fades, though the flower fades, fails, is like circulatory, has a lifespan, then dies. The Word of God endures forever, as James penned. So when it tells us here that love never fails, it's saying that love um, endures, love is forever, it is linear. This is the big idea. I mean, basically, it's telling us that love actually belonged in eternity past. Before anything was created, love existed in eternity past between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And once love is at play, once it comes to be, it is linear. It goes this way forever and ever and ever. It never fades. It is eternal. And what it tells us, therefore, and this is point number two, that love never fails. It never fails in being good because it's intrinsically good, and it is eternal. It is linear. It goes on forever. And therefore, in a relationship, you see, what it looks like is love loves For the sake of love, because love is good. Because love is a value as an end in itself. Because God is love. It's like we we should not go, okay, I'm going to love to get something from someone. It's like we shouldn't see a relationship like Coke machines. I'm going to put a little kindness in the Coke machine, and then I'm going to get something out of it. And if I don't get out of it what I'm expecting, then I'm out of here. That's consumerism. And God did not create us to be consumers. He didn't create us to be cons. He created us to know him who is love, to love him, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Love loves for the sake of mercy. Love loves for the sake of patience. Love loves for the sake of virtue and goodness. And how important this is to know 
especially in our generation, because I've got to tell you, our culture has accepted two huge lies. And the first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. And the second is, is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Can I hear a big amen to that? Look, it's just a simple point. It's kind of philosophical in a way. It's just the truth. Okay, watch this. Love never fails. If love is eternal, if love is going to exist into eternity, and eternity is where everything that really matters is, then it tells us the most important value and investment here on planet Earth right now is to love. Love for the sake of love. Love because God is love. Love because it glorifies God. Love because it never fails in being good and redemptive and helpful. Can I hear another amen to that? Right? So that's kind of the point. Listen, I, I have a beautiful father and mother. Both of them are still alive. My father was the best man in my wedding. He's not yet a believer. And so maybe a year ago, I was so burdened, I, I wanted to go talk to him, and we flew down, and I went and talked to him. Because as I've gotten older, and I know everyone in this room can attest um, to this, as you get older, you come to recognize the value of things and what is of real importance. It's like, you know, my precious bride who gave me a firstborn son at the age of 22, 23 years of age, when I held my firstborn son, oh, it was awesome. Now, when I hold my grandsons, it's awesome just as much. But as I've gotten older, I've come to recognize, oh, my goodness, the geniusness, all the more of God. I mean, I just, it's hard to put into words, but it's like these babies get heavier in terms of the, of the beauty and the geniusness and the awesomeness of life itself. Can anybody understand what I'm trying to say here? Right? So I just went to my dad and I said, Dad, I mean, I, look, I, mean, I want to tell you something. I love you, and I never want to be away from you. Now, Dad, I'm going to kind of paraphrase it. Dad, are you telling me that we have these babies, and we, and we have relationships, and we have family, and we recognize the importance of love? Are you telling me that it just burns up one day? That when we die, it just everything goes black? You're telling me it's, it's circulatory, it runs in cycles? Because if it is, then what is the meaning of the love I have for you? And what is the meaning of the love we have for family and children and grandchildren? What is it worth if it's not linear, if it's not eternal? And it's like if we believe in God, I mean, it's like and we believe in the first mover of all things. I mean, to think that he hasn't made us actually to be with him forever, just to create us and then put all these incredible dreams and dispositions in our heart for, for eternality and love and to value what is of value, that's just crazy. It just makes him a monster. I don't believe it. So I told him, Dad, I want you to reconsider Jesus. Would you do that? And he said he would. So I thank God. I mean, we made some progress on that there, but... 
There's nothing like love. Love loves because it's always good and glorifies God. And here's point number three, you guys. Point number three is love looks like the Heavenly Father. We have the most awesome Papa. And we need to remember that behind the gospel is the Father. And I'm telling you, I know there are some here tonight in whom the Heavenly Father is pursuing. He loves you. He is after you. He has had you in his heart from eternity past. Uh, He is sending his spirit tonight to awaken you and to open your eyes to who Christ is because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the, can someone tell me, Father, except it be through me. I mean, just check this out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place in Christ, just as He, that's the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in, can someone tell me? Love. Oh man, He's awesome. Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God, our Father, and we, out of all creation, became His prized possession. Do you remember when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray? And at that time, I mean, Judaism was more form than relationship with the Father. I shared a little bit of this in a staff devo because I have to say it so moved me and my precious bride about a a year ago. It just impacted us in a new way, and I want to share it with you. But Jesus said, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Jesus went on to say, if you then being evil know how to get good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father will give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. All right, first of all, the father never plays games with us. We ask for bread, he never gives a stone. He is totally trustworthy because he is innately good. He is perfect. Can I hear another big amen to that? And this idea that he gives the Holy Spirit, no small thing. The person and work of the Holy Spirit is a reality that Jesus spoke in depth about prior to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And the story of Nehemiah actually provides a graphic, a picture of the way the Holy Spirit works and influences our life. Because interestingly, his name means comforter. And one of the names of the Holy Spirit is comforter. And Nehemiah was sent to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. You know the story. Walls are very important to protection and security. They're essential to community, to relationships within the city. If the Jews are going to worship the true and living God on the Temple Mount, they're in the temple, they need some sense of security. That, those walls are absolutely critical. The Holy Spirit is absolutely critical and essential to our protection, our security, 
leading and guiding and empowering relationships that are critical in our life. God made us for relationships. And and absolutely essential to have intimacy of relationship with Almighty God. Has to do with the temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when the Father gives the Holy Spirit, He is acknowledging the need we all have, actually, for security, for comfort, for healing, for wholeness. He's saying, basically, I know. I know the biological and sociological and theological dynamics that have shaped your life. And I know what needs repair. I know what needs healing and rebuilding. I know how chromosomes, you know, have impacted you. I know that you come from parents who are not perfect. I know your genetics help explain inclinations, but don't excuse sin. I know the choices that you've made and the consequences of those choices. And when the Father says, I will give you the Holy Spirit, he's saying the Holy Spirit navigates through all of those realities, and he brings repairing, he brings healing, he brings wholeness. We have a really good father. The Bible says we don't want to grieve the spirit because the Holy Spirit is perfectly just and perfectly good. He wants to protect us. He wants to build our lives up and nourish our lives. And think of it like a dance. You know, you want to you be in harmony with the Holy Spirit that the Father gives to us because to be in harmony with Him is to be whole and to be rightly protected and to grow as God intended. Spiro Sodiati said this, if we have asked God to guide us in all the steps of our life, We should look upon our present situation as from the Lord and accept it as such. He has not given us a stone. We must never suspect under any circumstance that we are treated ungenerously by our Lord. He has given us that which is for our lasting good. Our present distress may appear evil, but it is not. Every circumstance of our affliction is made subservient to our soul's completion. God will not deceive us, for he is innately good. Oh, yes, love looks like a great heavenly father. But let's be honest. Do you think the disciples ever wondered they were given a stone, not bread? They followed Jesus to Jerusalem. They believed he was the Messiah, and in fact, he was. They're expecting to rule and reign with them, even though the Lord had told them many times he would be given over in the hands of evil men and be crucified. But it was, it was not sinking in as uh, intended by the Lord. And so they get to Jerusalem, and oh my goodness gracious, we've been living in illusion. And Passover sealed it. You know, Jesus was crucified. And you might ask, well, what are you talking about? Well, we're not the disciples like you know, following Jesus because they believed he was the Messiah? Yes. Did they not believe that he would restore the Jewish kingdom? Yes. Did they not think that uh, they would be a part of that and have appointed position? Yes. They never envisioned the crucifixion. Do you ever wonder, they're thinking, my goodness gracious, here we're following Jesus. It's like, we, you know, he talked about bread, but I think we got a scorpion on this one. And it wasn't until the resurrection that that radically changed. Now they realize, whoa, 
we are a part of something a whole lot bigger than we ever imagined. I mean, Jesus came and destroyed the darkness behind the darkness. I mean, he came to really go after the core problem, which is broken relationship with God. He came to crush Satan's head. I mean, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus would not just be regional. It would be worldwide, and they would be a part of it. So in other words, my point is, look, uh, you ever wondered if they're thinking, man, we follow Jesus all the way to Jerusalem, doggone it. We got a scorpion. We got a stone. I, I wouldn't be surprised they were feeling that way in some way. But once their eyes were open to the truth, they realized, oh, my goodness, following Jesus is much greater than we ever could imagine. What about the Apostle Paul, who had that thorn in his flesh? He pleaded over and over again that it would be removed. Did the Lord give Paul bread or a stone? The Lord did answer Paul's prayers, you know, but not his specific request to remove the thorn. He told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul, I'm going to answer you. Look, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to actually perfect my strength in your life. Now, here's the thing. Paul, if I just take away that thorn in your flesh, I know it would be a blessing, and it, it would bring temporary relief. But here's the thing. I have something much bigger for you. And when I answer prayer, I'm not just thinking of you. I'm thinking of a generation, and I'm thinking of generations to come. So, so here's the thing. I'm going to give you what you need and more. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to use that adversity to actually draw you closer to me, to use you as a powerful instrument that would impact thousands and thousands of years. And Paul got to the place where he was able to say, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He said, therefore, I take pleasures in affirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am, can someone tell me, strong. Okay, wait. Hey, do you ever wonder if he thought that father gave him a stone? No, he didn't. He, he always gives bread. He always does. What about you? I mean, what are you going through something? You're thinking, man, I... I mean, I'm so glad to hear it that he doesn't give, you know, a stone. I, I kind of feel that's the case. No, he never gives stone. He doesn't play games with us. He is perfectly good. He is always good. He has his hand on you. And that hand is a hand of provision and love and help and realities that are greater than you could ever wrap your mind around. Now, here's the thing. How do we know these things are even true? Seriously, how do we know what love looks like? How do we know it's eternal? How do we know that the Father is good and he's always good? Here's point number four. Look, it's because love won on the cross. It's true. Someone might say, what do you mean won? I mean, Jesus died of the lowest form of execution of the Roman Empire. You know, many Jews in the first century actually believed the Messiah would topple the Roman Empire, bring righteousness and peace to planet Earth. And then for Jesus to go into Jerusalem, and he's like kind of beaten down, if you will, and he dies in the lowest form of execution of the Roman Empire. I mean, that's so humiliating. 
I mean, it's like he, he, he was overcome by the empire. Time out, wait a second. How about if the reality is Jesus was in full control? How about that Jesus actually gave himself on the cross? How about actually if 1,300 years later, or earlier, excuse me, that what took place there in Egypt, that great deliverance, that exodus, was actually a prophecy of what Jesus would accomplish you know, in Jewish tradition, when those Passover lambs were roasted in Egypt, they were actually lifted up on a pomegranate stick and roasted. And, and the insides, the intestines were put on the lamb's head called the crown sacrifice. Thirteen years later, Jesus on the same day is in Jerusalem giving his life on the cross. Now, wait, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait a second. This, this tells us then that he was in control. This tells us it was actually a love rescue. This tells us that he was giving himself for the benefit and the help of others like, like Arlen Williams did years ago. Some of you will remember this, 1982. Flight 80 to Florida. It crashes. It's in the Potomac River. It's just a terrible scene. You can watch it on YouTube, and, and all these people are drowning, and there's Arlen Williams. As the lifeline is given to him, he's handing it to other people so they can be rescued. There's nothing more powerful than a love rescue. There's nothing more powerful narrative than when someone gives their life for another. Jesus said, no man has greater love than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And Arlen Williams, as he's giving that lifeline to others, and they're being pulled out of the icy river of the Potomac there and being rescued, all of a sudden, it's like, where did Arlen go? Arlen just slipped down into the murky waters. He gave his life to rescue others. And, and today there's bridges named after him, schools named after him, rightfully so. And, and if he was here, check this out, if Arlen was here, Every one of us would stand up and give him a thousand standing ovations, right? But he isn't here. But Jesus is here. Jesus is alive. And there's not a greater love rescue than what he accomplished on the cross. Can I hear a big amen to that? And I'm telling you, he wants to meet you. He wants to meet you tonight. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except to be through me. Think about it. That means the Father sent the Son. That means what he accomplished on the cross wasn't he was out of control. That, what he accomplished was a love rescue. It was a demonstration of selfless, protective, nourishing love for you and I. And it tells us then that the Father is good. It tells us what love looks like. It tells us that this love rescue brought right relationship with God. And not only that, but it has a radical impact upon our life. Look up here on the screen. I I want you to notice what's underlined there. And, And such were some of you. I mean, Paul is actually pinning this to the church there in Corinth. And and he's basically saying, I mean, hundreds and thousands have been rescued by the Lord. Such were some of you. And the list is 
is well. I mean, it's, it's uh, not something that we're not familiar with on so many levels. I mean, he says there, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, set apart. You were justified just as if you never sinned in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Here's the thing. Watch this. Um, You know, if you go back 2,000 years ago, our brothers and sisters who were caught in these broken loves, these dislocated loves, these counterfeit loves, they they would have said, the fornicators, sex before marriage, they would have said, you know what? I mean, love is love. I, I feel so right. It feels so natural. And idolaters, well, I mean, um, idolatry is, is merely bumping God off the throne and replacing it with something that was never intended to be there. It's a God replacement, and God replacements end up treating us terribly, actually. And he mentions heterosexual sin and homosexual sin and all of these different things. Please hear this. There came a time in these Corinthians' lives where they were like, you know what? What we had here was a counterfeit, dislocated love. It's not, it's not a true love. It was wrecking our lives. And it wasn't until we came to meet true love like God is love and he's demonstrated his love to us in Christ that it changed everything for us. We realized that prior to that, man, it was just all dislocation. It was a broken love. It was a counterfeit love. And that's why Paul was able to say, and such were some of you. You have now been rescued by love. Can I hear a big amen to that? So true. Real love, genuine love. God is love. And you need to know that the love rescue Jesus accomplished on the cross, it's totally married to the hip of his second coming. And this is point number five, the second coming of Christ. I got to tell you, it's a love rescue. And it's going to be the greatest I told you so in history. Jesus said, unless those days are short, no flesh would survive. When Jesus returns, he comes back as Savior. That means a rescue. He comes as judge. He brings justice. He comes as king who will reign on the earth, and nothing will stop this plan because God is love. Now, Maybe you're here for the first time. We're so glad that you're here. How many of you out of curiosity? I meant to ask this earlier. How many of you are here for the first time? Could you raise your hand real quick? Uh, Just slip up your hand. I'm sure there's a few of you. Okay. We're glad that you're here. Glad that you're here. Maybe you're here for the first time. Maybe you're coming for for some time. But you're thinking, well, how can I experience this love? I mean, what would God's love look like in my life? Well, we've been talking about it. But, but you need to understand, the Lord gives us a choice. He sets before us life, death, blessings, or cursing. And the most important decision you could ever make, actually, is to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In, in a lot of ways, 
it's very difficult to run from that Father's love. To end up in a place that was intended for the devil and his angels. A place called hell. It's very difficult to get there. Because you've got to climb over the cross. You've got to disregard the resurrection. You've got to say all those individuals, such were some of you that had this incredible love, rescue, and regeneration, a new identity in Christ. It's just all, um, I don't know, a concoction. In a lot of ways, it's very difficult to end up literally separate from the Lord God Almighty forever and ever and ever because it's like you just got to push away the phenomenal love that is in Jesus Christ. Don't do that. Listen, the Lord loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He's running you down. He wants to turn you around. He wants you to leave here knowing your sins are forgiven that you, you've gotten past your past because he paid it all for you on the cross. And that is really just a decision away. You know, I think of when Jesus was on the cross, there were two criminals, one to his right and, and the other to his left, and initially they both mocked him. They both said, you know, like if you're the son of God, just get yourself out and rescue yourself. They were mocking him. And then one of them came to his senses and acknowledged him as Lord and asked that he would be remembered when the Lord enters into his kingdom. And Jesus turned to him and gave him assurance on a drop of a dime that he could have right relationship with the true and living God. But there Jesus was with his arms outstretched in equal opportunity, God. And it could be said, please hear this, that when Jesus was dying on the cross, with one hand he reached up, he took the hand of the Father, and with the other he reaches out to every single human being. And I believe he's reaching out to some of you tonight. And he's just saying, man, I want you to take my hand. You say, well, Greg, how do I do that? For one, recognize what he's done for you. He not only made you and created you, he's revealed himself to you. Jesus was sent by the Father to pay the debt of your sin and mine on the cross to bridge the gap between God and man. That's the problem with all of us is a separation outside of Christ. It's a separation from the Father in Christ. We, we need him. We need relationship with him. That's the missing piece. Recognize that, number two. This is critical. Please hear me. You need to repent. That's a great thing, actually. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. Repentance carries the idea of, you know, turning from a self-centered life to a God-centered life. Jesus said there's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many go that way. He said there's a narrow way that leads to eternal life. Few be that find it. And then number three, you need to receive him. Receive him? Yeah, Jesus said he stands at the door and knocks, and if anyone would hear his voice and open the door, he would literally come in. Look, this is very important to understand. Okay, Christianity is not merely ideas or a change of outlook or attitude. Christianity is bringing the true and living God into your life. We're talking about like the Lord himself taking residence in your life. The Bible says without that 
It's like we, can, we can't know him. We will not know him. It's impossible to be his child. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he'll neither see nor enter into the kingdom of God. Born of the Spirit. This is the beautiful thing. Can I hear an amen to it? We're talking about the Lord coming into your life. Not that we just learn a little bit about love and stuff and and walk out of here, okay, well, I'm going to make some improvements. No, I'm talking about the same Jesus that conquered the grave tonight coming into your life. The Bible says those who call upon him shall be saved. And it's critical that you do it now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time, the Bible says. If you hear the voice of God, harden not your heart. So I just ask you, have you recognized what God has done for you? He made you. But not only that, he's revealed himself to you in the person of the Lord Jesus. Number two, it's critical you repent. Change the way you think. Embrace Jesus Christ. Turn from every known sin. He'll give you the strength to do it. And embrace the Lord and know his forgiveness. Receive him. He's just a prayer away. And do it right now. Listen, there is a battle for people's souls. There's no doubt about it. Jesus said the devil's come to rob, kill, and destroy. Heard this little story, but it illustrates it. I think, you know, the dynamics taking place. You have these demons that went to Satan and said, look, we've been working on strategies to deceive planet Earth. And Satan's like, okay, well, what have you come up with? Well, we're going to go tell people that God doesn't exist. He said, that's not going to work. I mean, people know deep down inside he does. Well, another one said, I'm just going to go tell them that, you know, there's no hell. No, that's not going to work because it's like, hey, there's ultimate judgment, justice. Otherwise, Hitler gets off. I mean, come on. Finally, the third one said, I'll just go tell them that there's no hurry. And the devil said, oh, that's a good one right there. Just put it off. Don't put it off tonight. What does love look like? Oh, man, Jesus on the cross reaching out to you and wanting to come into your life and give you the life that God has intended you to experience. Can I hear a big amen to that? Let's pray at this time. Let's pray. Amen. Amen. Father, we want to thank you for you. There is not a more wonderful person, Father, than you. Our precious Father. And Lord, we want to pray for precious ones here. Maybe for the first time, maybe coming for months. Maybe you've been church for, uh, for many years. But they couldn't say for sure that, Lord, you indwell them. That the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead actually indwells them. They couldn't say for sure that there's been this turn in their life, this regeneration, this moving from a broad way to the narrow way. And you said... Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I pray in your name you would open their eyes now. Whether they're 15 or 45 or 35 or 25 or 75 or 85. Lord, we've been celebrating your incredible love. You are incredible. Lord, you are awesome, indescribable. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, not one person here tonight that is yet to embrace you as Savior and Lord would leave you in that sa- leave here in that same condition. And I just want to ask, please, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, and I want to ask the church family to be in prayer. Be thinking and praying for those to your right and to your left and behind you, in front of you. How many of you would say, Greg, you know, pray for me? Because tonight I want to invite Jesus Christ, not an idea, 
not an attitude. I want to invite the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to be my personal Lord and Savior, to be my God tonight. I, I want my eternity settled. I want to be prepared to meet Almighty God. I want that settled, and I want to leave here knowing that it is. If that's you, I just want you to raise up your hand. And by raising up your hand, you'd be saying, yeah, man, that's me. I want to receive Christ. Just slip up your hand, and I'm going to pray for you. I'm actually going to pray with you. I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. God bless you. I see you there in the back. Anybody else? You're not going to be the only one. There's nothing to be ashamed of to say, yes, Lord, come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my God. Be my Lord. Anybody else, if you would like to receive Christ, you raise up your hand and I'll pray for you. Slip it up high so I can see it. That's when I ask the believers to be in prayer. God bless you. Anybody else, if you'd like to receive Christ, you just raise up your hand. Awesome. 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 Thank you. You know, maybe tonight you've come and you're thinking, golly, I, I've been straying. And I, I, and I've been a prodigal and I need to return to the Lord. And I want to be tonight. I, I want that to be settled. If that's you, you raise up your hand. L- let me pray for you. If you'd like to say, you know, look, I, I, I need to return and I want to recommit. You raise up your hand. Slip it up high so I can see it just all over. God bless you guys. Awesome. Those of you that raised your hand, even if you did, and I, I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. And this is a prayer asking Christ to be your Savior and be your Lord. And he really is just a prayer away. So pray this prayer with me out loud. The Lord will hear it. He will honor it. And as a way of encouragement, if you know, if church family, you can pray this prayer as well. Those of you that raised your hand, even if you didn't, you'd like to receive Christ, pray this prayer with me right now. Lord Jesus, I call upon you now to be my Savior and to be my Lord. Thank you for dying for me, paying the debt of my sin. Thank you for resurrecting from the dead. Lord, I call upon you to take residence in my life. I know I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. Lord, cleanse me of my sin. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for coming into my life. Thank you for making me your child. And I, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.